Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Thanks, Kim. So there have been several distressing developments in Mali this past week with intergroup violence in central Mali. But your interview with Susanna Wing will go over that in some detail. So I wanted to start out our news wrap by talking about the leaked documents obtained by the Dossier Center and reported on by The Guardian that showed an effort by Moscow to spread its influence in numerous countries on the continent. The article by reporters Luke Harding and Jason Burke focuses on a close Putin ally, Yevgeny Prigozhin. A St. Petersburg businessman, Prigozhin was indicted by U.S. Special Counsel Robert Mueller due to Prigozhin's extensive social media campaign in 2016 to help elect Donald Trump. Moscow hopes to strong-arm the United States and former colonial powers like the United Kingdom and France out of the region and weaken pro-democracy movements, the document stated. These revelations come at a time when Russia is seeking new geopolitical footing and business ventures after being met with Western sanctions in 2014 for the annexation of Crimea and Ukraine. Already, multiple countries have reached high levels of cooperation with Russia, according to the leaked documents, including Sudan, Central African Republic, and Madagascar, though the Kremlin plans to still garner more support from countries where cooperation is possible. Pagosian operations, often referred to as the company, have aided numerous leaders to retain their power. In Central African Republic, the company claimed responsibility for getting rid of politicians and government officials that allied themselves closer with France. And in Madagascar, Russia produced the island's biggest newspaper. Smear campaigns were also used in Sudan against anti-government protesters. Business-oriented plans, such as a transcontinental railroad and a 2,300-mile toll road, are also mentioned in the documents. However, immediate practices by Moscow include setting up NGOs in various African countries to organize local initiatives and meetings. Besides a couple of marginal media outlets, it's unclear the effectiveness of the initiatives set up by Prigozhin or that they have even necessarily started. This leak details many variables in Russia's playbook for geopolitical strategy on the continent, and we'll continue to closely watch it unfold. Yeah, I feel like I'm having flashbacks to the Cold War. We should make sure to invite some of our historian friends to the podcast to put these moves by Russia in a historical perspective. For example, I'm thinking about Loyola University of Maryland historian Elizabeth Schmidt, whose 2013 book, Foreign Intervention in Africa, describes how the U.S., the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, and other former colonial powers kind of entangled themselves in domestic African politics during the Cold War. And I'm curious to know how or in what ways we can connect contemporary Russian interference in Africa to this longer history. Now, in an earlier episode, we actually talked about Russia's interference in Sudan that you mentioned. And I just want to bring our listeners attention to some digital disruption in Sudan this month, right? During these long ongoing protests uh, to bring about real democratic change in Sudan. Now, as Stephen Feldstein wrote for us in the monkey cage this week, from December through April, the Sudanese government ordered its telecommunications companies to block social media and to periodically disable access to the internet nationwide. Then on June 5th, Sudan's internet was disrupted yet again, starting with mobile phone service providers, MTN and Mobitel, and spreading to Sudan's other mobile services. And it was during that June 5th disruption, right, that security forces launched major crackdowns on sit-ins in Khartoum. Then just this past Monday, the regime cut Sudan's remaining internet access, resulting in a near total blackout. Now, whereas earlier shutdowns focused on social media platforms, right, this blackout affected the entire internet. 
Thanks, Kim, for that update. And we're going to continue to watch what's happening in Sudan. And certainly, we've been reporting on that um, in, in the past with some, with some prior episodes on Ufahama Africa um, with Khalid Mandani and others. We also have exciting news that came out of Botswana this past Tuesday, relating to prior episode 55 with Ashley Courier on the politics of homophobia, the High Court of Botswana handed down a unanimous ruling that overturned colonial era laws criminalizing homosexuality in the country, according to the New York Times. On a continent where 32 out of 54 nations have laws criminalizing homosexuality, Botswana, long thought of as one of the region's most stable democracies, joined countries like Mozambique and Angola in decriminalizing homosexuality since 2010. The Deputy Director for Advocacy and Government Relations for Amnesty International, Adoti Ekwe, told the Times that Botswana's ruling was a step against the current. Even as activists cheered, though, the ruling follows another decision from Kenya's High Court, which we mentioned last week, which upheld laws that criminalize same-sex relations. Right. And it's important to remember that many of the laws criminalizing homosexuality come from the colonial period. And that colonial legacy was not just about governmental control, but also about the legacy of colonial missionaries and then the continued fundamental religious beliefs from, from uh, abroad, but also domestically, right? So religious conservatives across faiths have been a force of influence on their governments, you know, whether it's evangelical Christians exerting extensive influence in Uganda or, you know, more fundamentalist Muslim groups uh, having that same influence in Sudan and Somalia. Now, Botswana President Mogwetsi Masisi even alluded to tentative support for gay people, saying, quote, just like other citizens, they deserve to have their rights protected, end quote. And you had mentioned Ashley Courier's episode. She's actually doing field research in Namibia right now. And she had a great status update earlier this week when she shared that Namibia's first lady, Monica Gangos, had called for the scrapping of Namibia's anti-sodomy law, right? So another one of these laws that criminalizes homosexuality. And uh, apparently the first lady did this publicly in a televised address. So with this good news in Botswana, let's keep our eyes on other places on the continent that may soon follow in its footsteps. Exactly. And now I wanted to move to some economic announcements on the continent. So this weekend, I'm at the Council on Foreign Relations annual meeting in New York. And the big discussion among several um, participants here is excitement about the continental free trade zone just ratified in Africa. It is the largest free trade zone deal since the WTO. Now, currently, about 15% of African trade is intracontinental, whereas if we look at Asia, for example, it's over 50%. So there's real excitement about the possibilities to increase local production for local markets, increase processing and manufacturing for regional trade. And as we know, the demographic trends on the continent suggest that there are going to be growing and growing consumer markets. So... This also, I think the Continental Free Trade Zone also presents possible changes in the impact that automation may have. If we think about the rise of manufacturing, the concern with AI and increasing automation is that that takes away good uh, manufacturing jobs. But in complex product chains, there is a role for labor to be involved, in particular with so many different parts, if you think about the automotive industry, for example. Um, and so labor may become more necessary rather than less, um, particularly where this increased potential for, for intra-regional trade um, to get to local markets is made more possible. So also news coming out of East Africa on Thursday reported by Bloomberg was that Kenya, Burundi, Uganda, Tanzania, and Rwanda have all planned to increase spending on infrastructure, funding plans to build more roads, railways, and power plants. 
For example, in Kenya, which is East Africa's largest, largest economy, plans to implement its Big Four agenda, um, gives over 500,000 homes to first-time homeowners by June 2022, and develop manufacturing and healthcare to create jobs as well. So this is a major electoral issue in the country, to say the least. The project will cost an estimated 405 billion shillings, or $4 billion, and in Tanzania, um, as another example, pending approval by lawmakers, 7.5% of the country's $14 billion budget would go towards a new standard gauge railway line that would go from the commercial capital of Dar es Salaam through the political capital of Dodoma. So there are big kind of infrastructure plans coming out of East Africa that could build on or contribute to this continental free trade zone in important ways. That's really exciting news. And talking about exciting news, some of our friends and fellow political scientists have their book launch party coming up on June 19th. That's Jeffrey Paller, whose book, Democracy in Ghana, Everyday Politics in Urban Africa, will be paired with Noah Nathan's book, Electoral Politics in Africa's Urban Transition, Class and Ethnicity in Ghana, at this joint book launch at the Center for Democratic Development in Accra, Ghana, and the event is going to be on Wednesday, June 19th at 1 p.m., and we're really excited for them, and, and we hope that our friends in Accra who are around will be able to go and check that out at CBD. Absolutely, and shout out to Cambridge University Press for publishing these great books. Um, I wish I were in Accra next week to join you there. Also, I wanted to mention Larry Diamond just started a book tour for his newly published book by Penguin Press, and that's titled Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. Now, I've just heard him speak here at the council as well as uh, on a panel with Sherry Berman, and his pretty much depressed me about democratic global trends. But I'll say that my research with Anna Lerman at VDEM on Sub-Saharan African democracy shows that the global democratic recession is not necessarily the Africa story. Certainly within Africa, there are downturns in places that were already more competitive authoritarian like Tanzania, as we've been discussing. But there are also real struggles for freedom and rights as in Algeria and Sudan. And while we cannot count on the fact that those will be democracies, as we well know. Um, the population's demands for their own expression and representation is real and something that we cannot um, you know, uh, uh, discount to be sure. And there's also real um, continuity in some democratic regimes that have had transitions, such as in Ghana and Senegal. So the reality across the continent continues to be a lot of variation different trajectories, real struggles, and in any country in the world. So this is a global pattern. Of course, no regime can be taken for granted by its people. We have to continue to work for democracy, representation, and good governance across, across the world. Thanks, Rachel. Next week, we'll post links to what we've mentioned in this episode, as well as bonus links on our website, ufamuafrica.com. This week's conversation is with Susanna Wing, Associate Professor of Political Science at Haverford College. She earned her bachelor's degree in international relations and French from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a master's degree in African studies from UCLA, and then a PhD from UCLA in political science. She is the author of the award-winning book, Constructing Democracy and Transitioning Societies of Africa, Constitutionalism and Deliberation in Mali, that was later published in paperback as Constructing Democracy in Africa, Mali in Transition. Earlier this week, Susanna wrote a helpful explainer piece about the recent violence and instability in Mali that we recommend to our listeners who want to learn more. 
Thank you so much for joining us this week. I wanted to give our listeners a better sense of what's happening in Mali. Now, in the last few months in Mali, we've heard reports of uncharacteristic violence in areas between rival groups. Can you give our listeners an overview of what's happening? Of course. So since about mid-March in Mali, we've seen a real uptick in violence in central Mali. In the middle of March, there was an attack on an army base and 23 soldiers died. About a week later, there was an attack on two villages, Ogasogu and Welingara, which are in central Mali, and they're known to be uh, Fulani villages. And the attack was blamed on a Dogon ethnic militia called the Dunna-Ambasagu militia. And there were 150 people killed and livestock was destroyed. Families' homes were burnt to the ground. And the government decided to just ban this, uh, this militia and blamed them on the violence and the annihilation of these Fulani. And then just a week ago, we saw a Dogon village, Sobanaku, that was attacked. And the first reports were about 100 people had died in that attack. And what I would say is what's going on is a sort of retaliation from the attack on the military base that's blamed on terrorists. And the problem is, is that Fulani are being labeled in the country, generalized and labeled as terrorists. And so that was why there was this attack on this Fulani village. Mm. Um, And then the attack on the Dogon village is retaliation for the fact that it's argued that it was a Dogon um, self-defense militia that attacked the Fulani village. So it's this intermingling of the attack on the army base, which was... Uh, a local Islamist armed militia claimed responsibility for, right, um, that's being linked to all Fulani and hence the attack on the Fulani village. So there's this really kind of nasty intermingling of generalizations of ethnic identity and retaliation for various attacks that are taking place. And the problem is that this is just spiraling out of hand. And as this is happening, there's also been a crisis of governance in the country. Who is in power and who has left power in the last year? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, There's a democratically elected president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, in Bamako. And so there have been elections. But the real problem in Mali is this sort of separation between the political class that are ruling in Mali and the rest of the country. And so there's this sense that they, um, the, the politicians in Mali are just not effectively responding to this crisis unfolding across the entire country. And the fact that we have military forces, international military forces, a UN peacekeeping mission in northern Mali, and in continuing insecurity in northern Mali, insecurity in central Mali, and the government, uh, it, you know, makes statements. For instance, they right after the massacre in Ogasugu, the government made a statement that this Dogon militia was going to be banned. But what what is what effect does that have, right? The militia said after this last attack that this is essentially war, and 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 so their response was 
you know, we're not dissolving. In fact, we're, we're picking up arms again. So that's what, you know, it, the governance is simply not functioning in this country. Now, your award-winning book, Constructing Democracy in Transitioning Societies of Africa, Constitutionalism and Deliberation in Mali, published in 2008, details democracy building in Mali. Would you have imagined in 2008 when your book came out that Mali would be where it is today? No, not at all. Um, And I think few people who studied Mali, study Mali, imagined this kind of spiraling out of control. The country was sort of a quote-unquote model of democracy at the time. I think we all knew that it wasn't deep, it was fairly shallow, but many of us had hopes that there were the right ingredients to make this, to make Mali work as as a really a democratic country. What we saw the inklings of at the time, and I remember this because there's sort of many points in my book where I said, you know, if things go down this path, for instance, the president kind of uh, co-opting the opposition and increasing his own power, those kinds of red flags I remember including in my book, but really never thinking that things were ever going to get as bad as they ended up happening. So it's almost like every red flag that was raised ended up unfolding in a a disappointing way. Now, your book emphasizes the participation of previously neglected groups as important for crafting a legitimate constitution. What do you think of Mali's constitution today and the prospects for democracy, right, this democratic experiment? Do you think an inclusive form of negotiation could work to bring some peace and stability? So the interesting thing about Mali is that many Malians still hold that original 1992 constitution dear. In other words, it was created in this deliberative moment. And so there's there's a great deal of support for that constitution. And it is strongly democratic. Now, there have been attempts to change the constitution. And there's there's been movements uh, to prevent that change. So uh, organization Hands Off My Constitution was created and people mobilized to prevent any constitutional reform. So that being said, the constitution is important and this, and people respect that, right? So the question about inclusive negotiation, in fact, I think that's essential for how Mali can move forward. Mali's got to bring everybody to the table again and to try and figure out who the stakeholders are, what their grievances are, and how they can be addressed. But I mean in a really inclusive and and open way, right? Nothing that's kind of pro forma and still allows those in control to absolutely remain in control. So... I think in part because the deliberation dialogue is a core part of what Malian democracy is about. And you'll see people from all walks of life using those words when they talk about Malian democracy. In other words, they really hold that in deep respect. So I think, honestly, the only way the country will achieve peace and stability is through increasing deliberation and, and truly inclusive negotiation. So what research are you working on now? What's exciting you um, in in your own work? 
So um, lately I've been doing work with Alice Kong from University of Nebraska on Benin, and we're working on the constitutional court in Benin and looking at human rights uh, through the court, what sorts of cases they're doing, and um, it's really sort of close analysis of court decisions, and I'm about to go to Benin uh, to do some research talking to people about how they view the court and the justice system in, in the country. That's really fantastic. Where will you be based in Benin? I'm going to be in Cotonou for about two weeks and going to travel around and see who I can talk to. That's great. Now, finally, our last question we ask of our guests is what they're reading or have read recently. Is there anything that you'd recommend to our listeners? So, yeah, I've just, I've got two books I'm going to mention. One is um, an amazing memoir by Laylee Hayslip called When Heaven and Earth Changed Places. And it's a memoir of, a, of her experience growing up during the Vietnam War and then coming to America afterwards. And it's gripping, it's moving. And I got to meet her and hear her talk about her book. And it's it's extremely powerful. So, that's the first one. And the second one is um, called Off the Radar by Cyrus Copeland. And this is a really fun book for me because it's actually about a childhood friend, but it's a son trying to understand his father's life. His father passed away and um, they were living in Iran and he wonders whether or not his father was actually a CIA agent. And so it's really his gripping discovery of, of learning about his father and his life in Iran. And so those are the two things that I think are sort of fun uh, and really interesting reads that I've just finished. Perfect recommendations now that we're beginning our summer here in North America for folks who are looking for some good summer reads. All right, Susanna, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production created by Kimi Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University, as well as the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Medill School of Journalism Class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama. Salama.